This morning, the reading comes from Romans 11, verses 11 through 22. So I ask, did they number, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness. Did we time that right to where cut off, the mic cut off at the cut off on the close? All right. Next time. Next time. Uh, welcome to Sojourn. So thrilled you're with us. We hope and expect that this morning, no matter how you come in or what you come in with, that you will experience the, the good and gracious fathering of God. This is a fathering uh, that we have seen written throughout the pages of history, throughout the pages of scriptures, a really good fathering. We look in the pages of Scripture and we see really early on that humanity, we included, are, are really evil, wicked, turned away from this one who created us and is our father by creation and rebelled against him. And, and yet on these pages still written, even though we should be cut off from this father, he pursues us in love. In other words, when we look at the scripture, we see something revealed there. It is a redemptive plan, a, a plan to get back what has been lost by sin. Like He is going after his creatures, his image bearers, so that he might have with himself, uh, as a father, sons of himself. Right? He's going to purchase them to be with him forever. It is a beautiful redemption plan that we open the scripture anywhere and see that there is a redemptive plan plan is a really beautiful thing. And in chapter 11 of the book of Romans, God's redemptive plan is being further revealed as we go along. And, and it's a, a plan of, that's already in its nature is beautiful and good because we don't deserve any sort of redemption because of our sin, but there still is this redemptive plan. And so here's what Paul does in these verses here this morning. He, he, he takes us through some more revealing of God's redemptive plan. And with it, he then starts to speak to the redeemed, their posture that they are to have. So we have a redemptive plan, God's redemptive plan, and man's redeemed posture and attitude. And we are to see the redemptive plan and live out the redemptive posture. In this, Paul uses this imagery of an olive tree. This tree image is going to be prominent throughout this passage to describe this unfolding plan of God for the Jews and for the Gentiles. It's a plan, this redemptive plan, and this tree is a tree that is going to picture the using of rejection for the sake of reconciliation. It's going to look at branches that are broken for the sake of others being grafted in. This is a plan that Paul hopes will then you know, if we look at Jews and Gentiles, those grafted in and those who are natural, 
will actually lead to more redemption, further work of salvation as he writes it throughout history. Paul hopes that in this redemptive plan of the wild olive shoots of the Gentiles being grafted in, that the Jews will be made jealous and that more will be saved. In other words, he continues to say there is still a redemptive plan ongoing. That's good news for both Jews and Gentiles as he unfolds this because what both of them deserve equally before God is condemnation. And yet, he says, even if some are hardened for a time, there still is a redemptive plan and that is good news. And for the Gentiles who are in this redemptive plan, he turns and speaks to them a little bit more directly and says, hey, you need a redemptive posture. You need an attitude toward God that's right as part of this tree. You don't need to be proud but to stand in awe. So chapter 11 so far has asserted that although Israel is a disobedient and contrary people, that God has not completely rejected them. They've rejected him, but he hasn't completely written them off. He's saving a remnant. And there's a hardening, but God has not completely rejected the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. So following the hardening that he spoke of in verses 7 through 10, you could get to this question that he asked in verse 11. Because verses 7 through 10 are rough. And so you might get pretty quickly to verse 11, and Paul just asked it for us. So did they stumble in order that they might fall? Their rejection wasn't complete. God was saving a remnant, and their hardening wasn't irreversible. They didn't stumble in order that they might fall. The stumbling of Israel is not a final stumbling. In fact, there's a design of God at work in the midst of it. God is still writing a redemptive plan. It's still redemptive in its working. And so he says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make the Jews jealous. God's redemptive plan is working graciously, and here's how it's working through unexpected means. Through trespass, God is working. Through trespass, he says, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Israel's rejection of God, their sinful, hardened hearts against God is not the only thing that is happening in that same event. God is using that, that trespass, that sin, that hardening, that rejection of God to save Gentiles. Israel's rejection of God and their hardening is an open door of opportunity that God is using for the salvation of the Gentiles through Israel's sinful, obstinate rejection of the gospel, the gospel that Paul has already affirmed that they have heard and rejected Salvation is coming to the Gentiles. Out of the brokenness that is the story of Israel comes in the, the beautiful redemption of Gentiles. And, and we see this in the book of Acts so clearly. In Acts chapter 13, you see this kind of pattern. Paul and Barnabas are on mission and they're going to Pisidian Antioch. And they go to the synagogue first and they preach the gospel and, and listen to what happens. It says, as they went out, the people begged these things might be told to them the next Sabbath, that is in the synagogue. And after meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. There's a remnant hearing the gospel being saved. And as they spoke with them, they urged them to continue in the grace of God. Well, the next Sabbath comes around. Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews, they saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles, also to the Gentiles. And so, for the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Here's what happened in Pisidian Antioch. It's a pattern that you see over and over again. It's the redemptive plan of God unfolding in front of us that the Jews heard. Some of them believed. There's a remnant, as he already said in chapter 11, but others reject it. Many of them reject it. And then they start stirring up all kinds of trouble. They're hardened against it. There's chapter 11 again, right? 
They, they don't want the gospel, and now they're going to try to oppose the gospel. And so what does Paul do? He goes to Gentiles. And what are the Gentiles doing in verse 48? They're hearing it, and they're rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And many of them in that same place where it was being rejected by many Jews, many Gentiles are being saved. And so the Jews' sinful rejection turns Paul to the Gentiles, and salvation comes to, as it says, as many as were appointed in that place. Here's what didn't happen. It's not as if the gospel went to the Jews and didn't land and somehow ricocheted off, and we just saw where it landed, and it hit the Gentiles. It was God's redemptive plan. And in 1347, Paul says that this is what God made us for, a light for the Gentiles. This is not a mistake that now it's going out to them. Or in verse 48, it was as many were appointed for eternal life, believed. Like in other words, again, we're seeing over and over again, this was not some sort of ricochet that just landed in a place that happened to be the Gentiles. This was God's actual aim that some of the hardening and unbelief of the Jews would then land in the Gentiles' lap as salvation. This is a God who, he does these kind of things. He takes the brokenness and sin and through trespass brings salvation. He, he is the God who, like Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 says, he can take what's meant for evil and use it for good. And scripture reminds us all over that the gracious plan of God is at work doing this very thing whether we see it or whether we don't. We can remember that no matter what kind of situation and circumstance we happen to be into today. This is a God who takes things that might be meant for evil against us and he's using them in the midst of his overwhelming, overarching, sovereign, redemptive plan that he is working on this earth. The hardening of the Jews might, might one ask, verse 11, like, man, did they stumble in order they might fall? It looks that bad. But the answer that he gives in verse 11 is actually quite stunning. That God's actually using this hardening for the sake of salvation going further and wider than it had before. God is doing something beautiful out of the brokenness, and he's not done yet. Look at verse 11 again. It says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? No, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And there's more, so as to make Israel jealous. There's a twofold positive goal in the midst of a hardened, hardening of Israel. And here's the, the two folds of it, right? One is that it's an open door for the Gentiles. And the second is it's not only them, because here's what Paul also aims to do. Here's what God's redemptive plan is, to make Israel jealous. This was a, something you already talked about in chapter 10, verse 19. He says, I'm going to make you, Israel, jealous of those who are not a nation, a foolish nation. I will make you angry. That's from Deuteronomy. God, God had this prophetic word in Deuteronomy, and, and part of it was a remedy for their unbelief. He's saying, I'm going to tell you that this is what's going to happen so that you might see what's happening and be turned from your unbelief and trust in the one true living God. Amen. Again, it could be that, that verse 11 is, do they stumble in order they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make them jealous. Like it could just be, uh, hey, we're trying to see this prophetic word working in the Gentiles and that's it. No, he says, no, I want you to come back. Look at verse 13 and 14. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. Why? In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus to save some of them. In the book of Acts, Chapter 17, it says that the, Paul's custom, as this missionary who's going all over the place, his custom was to go to the synagogue first, where he preached the gospel. He preached the word of Christ. We know that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And Jews, on all these synagogues where Paul goes, they had heard the word of Christ. But what often happened is what happened in chapter 13, that some of the Jews believed, many of them rejected, and then they started to violently oppose Paul. So some of Paul's Hardest opponents throughout the course of his ministry were fellow Jews. Those that were his kinsmen, he says. They were the ones that were constantly after him, trying to kill him. And yet, what does Paul do in his ministry? He doesn't write them off in his ministry. He doesn't say, I tried the synagogue thing that one time. It went really poorly for me, so I'm going to go to the next place, and I'm going to skip the synagogue because that wasn't so good. No, he goes right back, and he preaches to them again. 
And he goes right back to the next city and he preaches to them again. And, and even when he's rejected, here he's writing to this church in Rome. He says, I'm not writing them off yet. I want them as part of this. I'm actually going to magnify my ministry, go even further in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles so that maybe that might stir them up to jealousy that they might turn from their unbelief. Paul's hardest opponents he wanted to draw in. As an apostle to the Gentiles, he goes hard in that ministry. He's trying to magnify the ministry, not, not his own life, not his own status. He wants to go far in the word of Christ and that many hear the word of Christ so that Jews might see this and be turned. So in other words, in, in the front of Paul's mind still as he preaches the gospel to Gentiles, as an apostle to the Gentiles, is the evangelization of the Jews, the salvation of the Jews. It's still with him. It's still his desire. You can't help but think that Paul, as he goes to these places and he sees hard opponents against the gospel, that maybe he keeps seeing himself in those opponents and he keeps saying, I, I know that I, I'm not the one who can get into their hearts, but I'm keep doing what the Lord has asked me to do, that God might somehow do what he did in me and capture them as if mercy found me, perhaps it might find them. And I know this God happens to be really patient, so I'm going to keep working that somehow jealousy, as he spoke of in Deuteronomy, might be stirred up. And one commentator says it well when he says that the idea is that the Jews observing the favor and blessing of God bestowed upon the Gentiles and the privileges of the kingdom of God accruing therefrom will be moved to emulation and thereby induced to turn to the Lord. In the Old Testament, Israel was to be this people that was a compelling people that the nations surrounding them would look at and want to go and figure out, like, who are you following? Who is your God that we might live with him as well because we're seeing your way of life. We're seeing what's going on here, and we see this is really good. They were to be a compelling people. And now Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles, and he's, he's trying to form them into the same kind of people, a compelling people that the Jews, opposite now, it's turned around, might look at them and say, that's a compelling thing going on there how might i get in on that and then he could come with the word of christ and so this hardening of israel had a twofold gracious purpose that there's still a gracious purpose in the midst of hardened rejection against god is amazing that god hasn't just written them off that paul hasn't just written them off is incredibly patient and compassionate from the heart of god and in god's gracious, redemptive plan that Paul is revealing here. There's good news. There's good news for the Gentiles. Hey, their hardening is actually working for your inclusion, and there's still good news for Israel. It doesn't sound like when you're reading chapter 11, you're not hearing good news for Israel, right? Chapters, uh, verses 7 through 10 sound like bad news. You have to even ask the question, did they stumble in order they might fall? That sounds like bad news. Here, their, their hardening leads to the inclusion of the Gentiles. Again, it sounds like for an Israelite, bad news. But here's the good news, is that if it weren't for God working in this way, there would be no good news for Israel because they have totally rejected God. Not one of them is righteous. Not one of them is trying to establish righteous or get righteous the way God has established it. They're trying to establish their own righteousness. That's how they're characterized. And so that they might be cut off in order to go to the Gentiles in order that they might be jealous of them and come in is good news or they'd all be cut off. Now Paul's not done trying to minister to Israel and reflecting a God who isn't done with them either. And that seems to be where he's going to go with some of the words he's saying next. God's not finished with Israel. Verse 12, it says that if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much will their full inclusion be. In, verse, in chapter 10, verse 12, he says that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches. So he helps us get an idea. What are these riches? The riches of salvation, the riches of God's grace, that he would include people as his sons through his son. That's the kind of riches he's speaking of in, in verse 12. If, if their trespasses means riches, the riches of salvation and grace through Christ Jesus, riches for the world, it means that for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? And this verse is also parallel with verse 15. That's why it is up there with you. So let's read verse 15 as well. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, the world, there that's, that's all people under earth, right, on earth, right? all nations without distinction, that's the world. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? 
Again, let's point out God's redemptive plan. The rejection of the Israelites, their hardened hearts against him and his hardening them, is working for reconciliation of all nations. Like it's working for the salvation of, of Gentiles everywhere under the sun. And it's beautiful that God would work it like that. That's gracious, compassionate, and kind because here's what we know about all the world. Not one is righteous. Just like the Jews, no one is deserving of God. They're all under the wrath and judgment of God. But God has this redemptive plan of reconciliation. And so Paul dares to ask, if their exclusion means good things for the Gentiles, then then what? What in the world might their full inclusion mean? What might their acceptance do? Now we need to take verses 12 and 15 together. They help work with one another to further define what's going on here. Taken together, the the world is people from all nations. We could say Gentiles there. When he says world, we could say Gentiles. And with full inclusion of verse 12, we need to read verse 15. Verse 15, all right, it comes right after 14. 14 is thus save some of them. That's what we're speaking about, this some. Some of them, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their, the, the sum of them who... Uh, are jealous and turned, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So I think some, when he talks about this full inclusion of verse 12, it doesn't mean necessarily the, the totality of Israel, but the full number of Israel that will believe. I think that's what he's getting at there. And he says of their acceptance, that their acceptance here will mean life from the dead. And this is where it gets really tricky, right? It's like, if it wasn't tricky enough... Here we have life from the dead. Now, now what he could be speaking of, and he says, what will their, their inclusion mean, their acceptance mean, but life from the dead? What he could be speaking of is their spiritual life, that now in Christ Jesus they are, are recognizing and having this experience of spiritual life with God. In chapter 6, verse 13, a, a similar phrase is found there. It says, don't present your members to Sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been, what? Brought from death to life. Very similar to what we find here. Life from the dead. That's one parallel, and that's one option. That maybe here is what he's speaking of. The end of verse 15, life from the dead is speaking of spiritual life for these Jews. He could also be saying something different. Um, He could also be saying that life from the dead... He uses that term often, even in the book of Romans. He's speaking about physical resurrection. The physical resurrection, and often in the book of Romans, he's using it in reference to Jesus, that he was raised from the dead. Like he was from the dead, is often used of physical resurrection in the book of Romans, and so it's hard to like cast this one aside. And we know the physical resurrection that he speaks of here has to be an end times, final, climatic, end-of-the-age type of physical resurrection. And he's saying that, that after Israel's acceptance by God through their faith in Jesus, that maybe that's the end and the final kind of climactic end of the age that ends in physical resurrection. And here's what we can say about both of those options. Both fit. Both could be true. Both are good options and gracious outcomes. I read this week that there was a He's a famous, he's, he's passed away now, pastor, but he said, someone wrote him, what do you think about Romans 11? And he said, well, I'm just 40, so I don't know. And uh, I'm not 40, so I don't know. And I can punt, I'll punt a little bit. I think that some of this is best left to next week. So there's part of my answer there. It's like, we'll, we'll leave some of that, right, what's this final full, we'll leave some of that to the next passage that we're going to get to um, but both of these options, I think, fit and are gracious and good options. And, and there's an outcome that, that Paul anticipates that's here. Right? Verse 16, right? something is happening. There's an acceptance. There's a reconciliation. There's a full inclusion, which I think means full number, not necessarily totality. And he anticipates this, that verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. That the first fruits would be the initial, you know, produce that comes in. The, the, the initial work, and from your initial work, you'd bring in the first fruits. And those first fruits were offered to God. In other words, they were, they were God's. They belonged to Him, wholly His. But those first fruits also represent more. 
there even a kind of a pledge for more? Like there's more to this than just the, the first part of it. And I think that that's the picture that, that Paul's trying to paint of God's redemptive plan. This, this plan is not done yet. It's still unfolding. And guess what? The, the, the dough, if the first fruits is holy, so the whole thing is. Everything God is doing is holy. It is consecrated. It is for the Lord and unto His name and for His glory. This dough and, and this root. And in context of the salvation of the world and the salvation of, of the full number of Israel, we're talking about a beautiful picture. And notice that we have the world and Israel working together. And in verse 16, they're one dough. They're one root. Not two. Not multiple doughs and multiple roots. They are the one dough. If the dough is offered as holy, so it's a whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are all the many different branches off that. And this is important because there's an emphasis of this over and over again in the New Testament. It's repeated in the New Testament that the people of God are this one people. There's not saved Gentiles and saved Israel. There are just the saved. There's not the people of God that just is Israel. Now there's the people of God that's just the Gentiles. They're just the people of God. When Paul writes the book of Romans, you know who he writes it to? Chapter 1, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's both Jew and Gentile. He, he writes to who? Not the saints who are Gentiles and the saints who are Jews. He writes to the saints. Paul brings this out a lot in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, He himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Like you, you, if you are saved by Christ Jesus, you are reconciled to God and you're reconciled to others who are reconciled to God, right? You, he, he, you cling to Christ and you're clinging to others who are clinging to Christ. That's how it always goes. There is no other way to be saved. And that from two, there's one new man. There is only one body, in chapter 3, verse 6, he says this, the mystery, this is the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There's one people of God. They are those who have faith in God. And in the Old Testament, we see that their faith, they're saved the same way, is a forward-looking faith. And in the New Testament, we see their faith is a backward-looking faith, but it is always faith in God that saves. It has never been anything different. We look forward to the promises of God being fulfilled in the one he said was going to come and crush the serpent, or we look back at the promises of God finding their yes and amen in Jesus Christ, who has crushed the head of the serpent and risen and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. This, this stretches from Abraham, who looked forward in faith, not just to a land, but to a city that was built by God, and of Paul, who now looks back at Christ and says, look at what he's done. He loved me. He gave himself for me. It looks back at Rahab and says, oh yeah, she was in on the promises of God because she's saying, your God is the only, only God, and I want in. How can I get in? And she trusted in God. And Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, this Gentile who says, hey, how can I get in? I've heard now of what Jesus has done. I'm in. And so they have the same root and the entire thing, Paul says, is holy unto God. It's all for him. This is an important idea because Paul writes to a church that's mixed. They might come in thinking we're two men. We come from this line. We come from this line. And he says, there's one line. There's one root, there's one dough, you're all the people of God, now holy unto the Lord. But it's the second image that Paul specifically picks up on in the rest of our passage this morning. Root, tree, he, he loves to go in this direction. And so he says, all right, we've seen God's plan revealed in, in arboreal terms, tree-like terms. And now we're going to continue that image, and that's what he does in verse 17. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Like, the tree image just comes to the fore. And that has, 
has, forget, forgive me here, right? it has Old Testament roots to it, right? the, the word of trees here. You, you might have heard several places in the Old Testament, there's this image of Israel as a vine, and here he speaks of an olive tree, and there's a few places where an olive tree is found in the Old Testament, two places in fact, but they kind of go together and so you might blend this, but why, why tree specifically here? and not vine. We love the vine imagery. If you, John 15, like he uses vine like so beautifully, but Paul goes with olive tree. It's used two times. Hosea chapter 14 is used in, in Jeremiah chapter 11. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16. It says, The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. And that image keeps going through a few different verses of this olive tree. And I think that likely it's Paul's picking up, not just on a vine, could have done the same kind of thing, same image as Israel in the Old Testament, but he picks up on olive tree, likely because it's used in a similar context of judgment in the Old Testament, where branches are literally consumed. And that's kind of what he's, the context of, of Romans 11 here. This tree is an Israel tree, right? That's what he's getting at. The, the tree is Israel, and, and there are branches on this tree, and some of the branches are being broken off. This happened in the ministry of Jesus in John chapter 8. What do they do? They come to Jesus, and they're arguing with him, and they say, we're part of the tree. We're sons of Abraham. He says, you're not. You're sons of Satan. It's a different tree. <laughs> right? That's not the same tree. They're broken off. He comes to the temple, he finds in the temple them, them selling things, turning what should be a house of prayer for all the nations to a den of robbers. And so we see this fig tree sandwich around it in the book of Mark where he's, he's pronouncing judgment upon the tree, upon the people of Israel. There are branches that are broken off. Or in John chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet and he says, you're clean, but not all of you. We know that he, he's looking at some of Israel, right? His disciples, and he looks at one of them. Who's Israel? Judas, but who's not clean? He's breaking branches off. Not all of them are there. There's clearly this element of judgment. And here's what he does here in verse 17. He says, all right, now this tree, this Israel tree, has these Gentile shoots that are grafted into this tree. Grafting, they would cuts into the tree and stick a shoot into it so that it might kind of be enveloped into the tree and grow then and be sustained by the root, by the original tree. That's what's going on here. And we know that this is only through the work of Jesus, that, that his work happens to work for the salvation of the Gentiles being grafted into a tree that's not their own. They're the wild ones, and he plucks them up and puts them in the tree. I, I love how, again, we'll go to Ephesians to help us describe this, but look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, just a bit up from where we were for, now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off, who were wild shoots, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. His blood shed is what brings them in. He himself is our peace. He has done it. He has made us that we're two, one wild shoot, one native tree, and he's made us one, and he's broken down what stood between it, so that now the same life is flowing through all of these limbs. He's abolished the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself, not two different trees, one new man in place of the two. He's giving us one, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. It's by the work of Christ then that this tree is this tree and that this tree can handle and absorb these wild shoots that are grafted in here. That's what he does for wild shoots. He takes a people who, chapter 9, verse 25, these are people who are not my people and he makes them my people. Or in chapter 10, he says, that's a foolish nation, I'm making my nation. That's the work of Christ. And now, Paul says, they're the ones who now share in the nourishing root as the other branches did. And looking through the book of Romans, we say, hey, they're they're Abraham's true offspring. They're true sons of the living God, Romans 8. There are those, Romans 9, that he foreknew. This is not a mistake that this has happened. He foreknew. He went and got them, and he put them in the tree so that they might be sustained and nourished by this same root. 
Now, the, the picture is of this tree, not just of a, a tree that's only ethnic Israel, ethnic Jews. Some of them are even broken off, but now it is the true Israel, the, the Gentiles being put in. And so what we have with this tree image now is that we have the one people of God represented in this tree. And so again, rejection from part of God's people that he called his people, nation that he called his nation, has now led to reconciliation of other nations that were not his nation, that were not his people, that the broken branches have led to the grafting in of wild branches, that individuals on this tree now are put in there because of the work of Christ. And it's that very reality that has change and alter those individuals' disposition, posture, and attitude toward others. Individuals on this tree branches that are grafted in or that are even just there, these are the redeemed. And here's what Paul says. He's talking to, he says it in verse 13, right? I'm speaking to you Gentiles. I'm going directly after you here. You who are grafted in as wild olive shoots, who are redeemed by the blood of the lamb, you are those who need to have a certain posture toward this tree and toward these branches. Look in verse 18. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. He has not given a command for quite some time. And here he throws a few of them down in this passage, which I think is significant. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. I remember like these, I think this is only found in high schools, right? You go in high schools and you have this big thing on the wall that has all the pictures of seniors from years past. I don't know where those things got created, but they're everywhere. And you can go back however many years they keep on this huge frame flipper holder thing. And uh, it, it might be just to like, and seniors, sorry to let you know about this, but like this is what's going to happen. It might be just in, in, at least to give public witness to how ridiculous we all look to seniors. <laughs> like, that's kind of what we do with it now. Like you go and you're like, look, oh my gosh, I can't believe this guy looked like this. You'll take a picture and you'll send it. Like, look how ridiculous this person used to look. I think maybe more truly it is to say like, hey, we stand in a long line. As a class, we stand in a long line of other classes that came before us. That seems to be a little bit of what Paul's getting at here. Like, hey, don't be arrogant. You're standing in a long line of people that came before you. Remember, he says, this is to Gentiles. You stand in this long stream of faithfulness, which, which you now get the, the good benefits from. And you're not the source of it. You're relying on it. You're standing in this stream of grace that, and faithfulness that's gone way, way back. And because of that, your attitude and posture should not be one of arrogance. Not be one of pride against the root or some of these branches that were either still clinging on or that were broken off. You can't look over them and be proud and arrogant towards them. Instead, your posture needs to be one of faith. Verse 18 again, don't be arrogant. It's the root that supports you. By your faith, you're still connected. Don't be arrogant with that. The grafting in leads to this negative command, don't. Because Paul knows the temptation of humanity. He knows the temptation with the power of the gospel, bringing salvation to both Jews and to Gentiles. He knows that as that power goes out, and these Gentiles in great numbers are included, that they might have this temptation to boast. And so he goes on, verse 19, because he knows that this is a temptation, and he says, verse 19, you will say, branches were broken off in order that I might be grafted in. Like you might think you're the only, you know, class in the frame. You've forgotten, you, you've just rolled past ten others to get to your picture on the wall. Now don't do that. You might say that, but don't say that. He says that is true, that they were broken off, that you might be grafted in. Because of their unbelief, they were done this. <laughs> like, part of what he does in, in just the way he writes it is he's trying to just push in some humility. And then like, you're already wild shoots. There's a knock right there a little bit. Here he comes and he says, hey, they were broken off, and it wasn't because you were so awesome. You, they were broken off because of unbelief. And so what do you do? Stand fast through faith. Do not become proud. Fear. Now here today, our, our temptation, very different setting than theirs, right? We, we're not living in a, quite the mixed church setting that they had of Jews and, and Gentiles and of kind of even, again, first century, trying to figure out, like, what are we to do with the Old Testament? What are we to do with these practices that we know were given by God and, and how they work in the yes and amen that we've seen in Jesus? I, we don't have all those same issues, right? 
Our temptation may not be to be arrogant toward the Israel branches as there was. Maybe from afar, and so hear the warning in that. But still we need to hear verse 20. We need to hear these commands. Do not become proud, but fear. And here's my experience. This is just my experience. I don't know that it's, it's prominent across the, the world or prominent in the American church. But my experience is that when we think about uh, Romans chapter 11, I, I'm going to hear a ton of stuff about Israel, the nation of Israel, geopolitical Israel, their future, what they're doing, all the, they're standing in the world. I've heard tons of that kind of stuff. And I have never heard anybody talk about our heart posture of arrogance toward them. There's so much interest in hearing the future of Israel. Maybe that's why you even like, hey, he's going to Romans 11. I'm really interested to see what he's going to say about the future of Israel. My guess is you weren't quite as interested in hearing about the posture of your own heart. That's how I approached it. And so, man, do I need to hear, do not be proud. One of these things here, the future of Israel and the posture of our hearts, one of them is really clear and one of them is much less clear. <laughs> Let's just be really honest. One is less clear. The future of Israel, lots of good people disagree. How is this going to work out? What do even these verses say? And next week, especially, you can, we can talk about that next week. Like, you're, you're off. And like, yeah, there's going to be people that are going to disagree with us on different things here as we go through Romans 11 because it's less clear. But Pride in the human heart is abundantly clear, spoken against and warned against over and over throughout the scripture. Amen. And so if we're interested in hearing the future of Israel, but not interested in looking at the arrogance in our own hearts, now we've got some serious work to do. Serious work that we need the Lord to do in our hearts. In verse 20, he gives these warnings, he gives these commands because that's our temptation. Let's do one another the kindness of not making one another say, hey, you're struggling with pride and arrogance. Let's take the risk to just assume that pride and arrogance is in our heart and start working to fight it with the truth of God's word. It's there. And redemption and being redeemed and pride aren't compatible. Salvation and arrogance don't go together. Because salvation is by grace. And that grace, what it does is it just starts disintegrating pride. Salvation ought to lead to these commands of don't be arrogant. But it also leads to this do, Right? Don't be arrogant, don't be proud, but do stand. Stand in faith. The, the redeemed are those who are to stand. They're not to be presumptuous upon God, but to stand in faith. They're to stand fast, he says, through faith. In other words, when you're standing, when you're trusting, you're, you're not leaning on yesterday's faith. You're presently standing in it. You're not looking back and saying, I've got all I need because I believed then. It says, stand by faith now. The, the, in the scripture, this is all over the place. The kind of daily standing, right? Manna comes from heaven. How often does it come? One day. Every week. Like you just get enough for today. You don't even collect it for tomorrow. If you do that, it doesn't stay. It goes bad. You get manna for a day. Jesus is the true manna. Is there a principle there? We need him for today? Do we need him one day at a time? In Matthew 6, he comes along and he says, Hey, don't worry about tomorrow even. Trouble is, is plenty for today. The implication is you can trust me for today. I'm going to give you the grace to get through today. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, Outwardly, I'm wasting away, but inwardly I'm being renewed. How? Daily. Day by day, he says. Stand in faith. Don't look back and say, I've got enough. Stand today. Trust today. The, the inclusion of the people of God as those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, leads to this redeemed posture. It's a posture that doesn't have arrogance and pride or is working to disintegrate it. It's a posture of daily faith. One author says it this way, it's neither a steeple, this inclusion as the people of God, it's neither a steeple from which to view the human landscape, nor a pillow to sleep on. You don't get to get up in the high tower and be like, look where I'm at. 
God is doing so much, and it happens to be the Gentiles, and I'm included in this, and so that must be the, the, the best thing that he is doing. He says, you don't get to get up on the, the, the steeple and look down at the landscape like that. You also don't get to be down laying on the pillow and acting like you don't need to stand. You need to stand. This faith, stand in faith, this living and active, daily trusting, daily receiving and resting in what God has done for you in Him alone. And, and daily, He's the one who holds us up. And so, verse 20, He says, Stand fast through faith. Do not become proud. But then He helps us. Fear. But fear. You, you want the antidote to pride? You, you want to work against arrogance? You need fear. That's what you need. Now, most of the time, fear drives things away, right? Drives us away. If I'm scared of something, I run away from it. That is natural. Maybe, you have, maybe it's fight or flight. Maybe you fight it, right? It's fighting or flighting, either way, it works the same here. That kind of fear, if it's toward the Lord, is not the right kind of fear. You don't want to, it's not fear that's running away from the Lord. That won't help you stand in faith, right? It's not fear that wants to fight the Lord. Again, that's not fear that's going to help you stand in faith, as he's just said. Here's the right kind of fear of God. It's actually doesn't drive you away from God. It doesn't make you run away. It actually draws you to Him. It's fear that, that it's like a magnet. It pulls you in. It draws you in. Fear of the Lord, right? Fear is, is awe of God and standing in awe of God and who He is and what He has done. But it's also intimacy. I, I want to be near Him. He, he's holy and good and I need to cover my mouth when I'm in front of Him. If I'm, if I'm an angel, I'm covering my eyes because I can't even look upon Him and yet somehow I want to keep going closer to Him. That's the kind of fear that Paul is speaking about when he says, don't be prideful, don't be arrogant, but fear. He's talking about fear of the Lord that, that is in awe of Him but also wants Him and wants to be near Him. And fear of God, what it does if we have it rightly, is it keeps us close to God, not far away from God. We don't stand at arm's length because He has brought us in. Fear of the Lord does not say, you know what, God has, you know, he couldn't have said all these kind things about us. It doesn't do that. It takes God at his word and feels like, man, I don't have a place here, but you've said, and you've said, and you've said, and it keeps coming closer and closer and closer. It draws us in and keeps us close to God. And where we're close to God, that's, guess what that place is? That is a place that has no pride. That is a place of humility. I, John Piper said this one time. He said that, that, that humility follows God like a shadow. If his shadow is being cast, if you're close to that, there, there's no pride there. It doesn't exist there. And so you want to you get rid of pride, you, go, you get near to the Lord. You fear him rightly. And Paul recognizes that, that while these Gentiles, eh, in the flesh, while we are in the flesh, here's what kind of encouragement we're going to need. We're going to need encouragement of verse 20 to not become proud, but to fear. That's the encouragement we're going to need. It's still needed. And, and again, he, he keeps moving. He moves from, from these commands now to a warning. Look at verse 21. For if God did not spare natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. You know what the Jews did? The Jews repeatedly asserted their status, their position, their privilege, We've got the law, we've got the covenant, we've got the promises, we've got all these things. Look at our lineage, look at what we've been given by God. And they said, here are all these things as why we're fine with God, why we have right standing with God, why we don't have, we're not sending under the judgment of God or the wrath of God. They use all of those things. And here's what Paul says, Gentiles, don't do that. As wild shoots have been put into this root, don't do that. In verse 21 and 22, when we're looking at 21, it's not about losing salvation. It's about warning of pride. It's about the wrong posture that you could have that Paul's warning you to steer clear of. Here's what warnings do. I don't think warnings are saying, here's what is absolutely possible, but warnings are meant to keep us. They are a means that God uses in order to keep those who are faithful, the saints in Rome who are Gentiles that he's speaking to here in verse 21, that he warns them as a means to keep them standing in the faith and not becoming proud. He wants them connected. And how does he keep them connected? By warning them. And those who are connected heed the warning and stay connected. Stay dependent. This is what we do with warnings for our kids, right? We're walking around and I see a lion. It happens all the time. And I say, there's a lion over there. It will literally eat you if you go too close. What does that do for my children? Well, hopefully, they get closer. Dad can protect me. He can keep me from this vicious line, which I can, they're right, <laughs> keeps them close. 
It's Father's Day. I get to do that. <laughs> That's what God is trying to do with this warning. Don't go over there. And what do they need to do with it? Heed it and draw close. Fear God. Pull closer to him. He says, he, he's cut off before. You need to know that. The lion can destroy. You need to know that so that you come closer. That's exactly what needs to be known about God to the Gentiles, Paul says. And then he says this. You need to note the kindness and severity of God. Kindness. Man, kindness. The kind of kindness that would save sinners. The kind of kindness that would, that would take on flesh and dwell among us. The kind of kindness that would be despised and rejected, cut off from the living by taking on in human flesh death. That kind of kindness. Consider that. But kindness is always spoken of. And praise God for it. My guess is that we have less time logged in our lives thinking about and noting severity. And the severity that Paul notes right alongside kindness, not as giving a privilege to one or the other, is noted right alongside is a, is a severity that is often overlooked, that is often not mentioned, that people don't want to talk about. And what this does, if we just note the kindness of God and not the severity of God, too often what this does is it leads to weak faith and pride, which he's warning against. doesn't lead to humility in the same ways. It leads to a place where you have the people of God who take lightly God and the things of God. I'll leave that to you, whether that is happening or not happening in the midst of the church today, but it seems often we need to recapture an, a sense of the severity of God. And Paul says, with this same tree that he's been talking about, you need to know the kindness and severity of God. And these two, they work together. They go together. If you're taking God lightly, not noting the severity, you're never going to notice the greatness of his kindness. If you're just noting the severity, you're never going to fear God and stand in faith the way you need. You need this kindness. And these work together. When we talk about salvation, we're talking about actually being saved from something. Not just to something. That's good too. We're saved from something. What does Paul tell us? That all people are under the wrath and judgment of God. Chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, of which we're all included. And we're saved from that. We're saved from the wrath of God. We need to understand that we are saved from something. And so in salvation, we need to note the kindness of God that he rescued us from that, that we deserved. But we also need to note the severity. There is a real judgment. There, there is real condemnation. There is real wrath of God. Diminishing that and taking it away doesn't magnify God, doesn't magnify salvation. It diminishes both of those things. And Paul says with the same tree, note the kindness and severity of God. Both of those need to be noted. Both of them need to be heeded. One commentator says that the kindness of God cannot be truly appreciated as a gift of His grace unless, unless the severity of God is contemplated as the just penalty for forsaking Him. It's hard for me not to think of, of Lewis's lion here. Aslan, you remember this great lion? He has big, sharp teeth. Big, long, sharp claws. But they have to say of him over and over again, but he's good. His goodness doesn't mean that he doesn't have claws or that he doesn't have teeth. In fact, when they're fighting the battle, they really want those claws and teeth. And his claws don't mean that he's not good, Right? Be, just because you're good doesn't mean you don't have claws. Just because you have claws doesn't mean you're not good. He has both these things. Kindness and severity are found in God. And that's what Paul tells us to note. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Consider his kindness that would come down and love you and give himself for you that you might be part of his people forever. Consider the severity of God too. God is not mocked. We reap what we sow. There's a real wrath for ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And it's these very things that are before us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think of the cross. Here's the kindness and severity of God. 
kindness for those who would trust in this one that because he died, you can live? That's severity too, right? This is what sin deserves. If you don't trust in this one, then this is what you will receive. Wrath. Can't help but notice again that this is what we do in the supper. We we are noting in the supper, the Lord's Supper, the the kindness and severity of God. Here's a table. A, A table that we're welcome to, but only through body and blood. That's a weird image. Body broken, blood poured out. That's gruesome. Severity. But you're welcomed in. Kindness. And if you're a Christian, like if you've trusted in Christ, this table's for you. He does welcome you. He has been kind to you because he was severe on his son. If you're not a Christian, we say, repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. This is the only one who, if you turn to him, then you won't face the severity that you deserve. And so we come to this table, and I, I think I'm, I'll put this up here and read this with you, and maybe we can leave it up while we're taking this. But when we come to this table, this is the prayer that, in a sense, ought to be in our minds, in our hearts. We don't presume to come to this, thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness. Establishing our own righteousness is a rejection of the righteousness that God gives us in Christ Jesus. But instead, right, we're trusting in, the manif- in thy manifold and great mercies. We're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. But you're the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Let's pray together. Father, may our hearts be stricken today with humility as we consider the crazy way that you've taken wild olive branches and placed them, grafted them into your tree. There's nothing about us that makes us deserve to be a part of your family, your tree. And we're not in it because of good decisions that we've made or good morality or wisdom. And the story is even so much bigger than the people who have influenced us and shared the gospel with us in the church that we go to. The roots of this tree go back to the very beginning of you calling a people to yourself, of your promise to send your son and crush the serpent, to crush our enemy, to conquer hell and death. And all of these things we could not do for ourselves, God. You called Abraham and said, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And he trusted you. He believed your word that you would do what you said you were going to do and we're saved in the same way. We put our trust in you and we look back to that moment when the Father poured out his severity on you, Jesus. That's your body and blood that we remember today. We remember our sin is serious and you don't just look the other way. You punish sin, but we also look at this cup and at this bread, and we remember your great kindness that you stood in our place. God, protect our hearts from pride. Don't let them get hard toward people and groups of people who don't believe what we believe and don't trust you like we do. We're not better than them. We're not different than them. We've been shown mercy. I pray that we would have compassion for other branches that we see lying on the ground, not connected to your tree, and that we would plead with them, that we would plead with you 
in prayer for them that you would grant new life, that you would raise them from the dead and graft them into your tree, Father. Protect us from laziness and complacency and this arrogance that can destroy us, God. Thank you, Jesus, for being our example of humility and coming down here to suffer on our behalf. Thank you for loving us first so that we can now love you. God, let us be a holy people. Let us be a compelling people. Let our witness, let our lives, let our love for one another draw other people in. Use our words and our lives to compel them to want to be in your tree. In your name we pray. Amen.